Have you seen these new Apple virtual reality headsets uh, that have just come out? You know, it's a thing you put on and it wraps around your entire face. I saw a guy out in public with one of these this week. And um, I forgot, I knew this, but I forgot that on the Apple version of these virtual reality headsets, even though it looks like they can't see anything, there are cameras that are projecting everything around them inside the headset. So I'm looking at this guy, and he, he says, hey, this guy's looking at me like I'm crazy. And he was right, because I was looking at him. I was staring at him, <laughs> thinking he can't see me, uh, but he, he could see me. Um, and I was looking at him like, man, this is really strange. It's the first time I've seen one of these um, in public. Um, I was staring because I didn't get it. And I forgot that he could see me. Uh, and as I walked away from that kind of awkward encounter, because um, even though he said that, I was like, I, I don't feel like I can talk to him because there's this thing on his face. Um, when I walked away from that, and I was thinking about it later. I was like, you know, there's probably a lot of people who look at me the same way. And they look at us the same way. Like, it probably makes no sense to them that you gave up your Sunday morning to come to church today. They don't get it. They can't see what it is that you see or that we see. And it might be that you're here today and you're like, I don't really get it, but I kind of wanted to see what the fuss was about or I wanted to get a a sneak peek into what it is that you guys are all about. And if that's you, we are so glad. Um, that you are here and hope you feel right at home. And hopefully before you leave today, you'll see what it is uh, that we see, what matters to us. Today, I want us to see one of the primary functions of the church, that our church is to be designed to encourage one another toward love and good works. And we see that explicitly laid out in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Read that with me. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as, the, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more, so, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I actually read this week that Apple is offering free 30-minute guided tours of this new headset because they know that unless you have experienced, unless you've seen it, You won't really get it. You won't know what it's about. My goal today is to help you see that our church is meant to be. What it's about is loving our neighbor. And for the entire month of February, we have focused on this topic. And I want you to see today as we wrap this up before we start a new series next month on what it means to be a disciple, I want you to see that this is not just something that we're emphasizing in the month of February because we thought it'd be nice. It's what we're to be about, and it's supposed to be the design of our church. We're supposed to be structured for the purpose of loving our neighbors. And I'm not talking about the design of our building, our facility. I'm not talking about the the design of our, our offerings or our programs. What I'm talking about is the very nature of our gathering, of our assembling, should be that we provoke one another to do good to those who are around us. And before I can jump into that, we need to have this common understanding of what it is to belong to a church. You'll probably be surprised to hear me say that the church, the Bible doesn't actually teach you to attend church. You say, what? Kind of sounds like we're supposed to assemble together. Well, what it's telling us here in this passage is that we don't just need to attend church, 
but that we need to belong to a church. And what's the difference between attending and belonging? I attended a basketball game this past week. Um, I didn't talk to anyone other than the lady behind the concession stand who gave me my hot dog um, and a drink. I didn't uh, connect with anyone who was on the court and learn about how I could play like they play or anything along those lines. I went, I watched, I was amazed, I left. And there's a difference between attending a game and being on the team, being on the court. Now, obviously, not everybody at the game can play. There's a lot of people that are just going to attend. But at church, there's a way that we can all be involved and we can all serve the mission. We can be a part of what it is that God is doing. Tim Keller has pointed out that a congregation is very different than an aggregation. An aggregation is what you get when you gather a group of people and they're all just listening to a lecture or they're watching a movie or they're watching a play. A congregation is different because there is this connection. He said that an aggregation is like a bag of marbles. Yeah, they're together and they look similar, but you pour them out and they go running off in all these different directions. A bag of grapes are connected organically to one another. And the church is to be organically connected to one another through a common vine that is Jesus Christ. You can actually attend church every Sunday and fail to honor what this passage of Scripture calls us to do. Because it doesn't call you to merely attend church. It calls you to assemble. It calls you to belong. It calls you to be connected. In fact, it's actually possible to find a church based on the level of involvement you want to have. Right? There are churches that you can go to and it is, it is designed, it is structured for you to take in content, be inspired, and leave, and that's it. Our church is not like that. We're not designed to have an audience. Rather, we're designed to have a congregation, a place where people are connected. We are not a place that you attend. We're a place that you belong. So let me help me illustrate the idea of the difference here. Uh, Nicole recently ordered new uh, beds for the kids, and they came, they arrived on our doorstep, and I looked at the size of the boxes, and I knew I had just lost an entire Saturday. <laughs> because the bed was there, but it was not assembled. All of the pieces were in the box, but there was going to be a whole lot of work to put those pieces together. And when I opened up the box, I found that all of the screws, and there were lots of them, they were all different sizes, and they had been mislabeled in Hong Kong or wherever it was that this came from. And I had to take some time to figure out, okay, that's that's actually screw H, and this is actually screw J. And then take all of the pieces and put them together. The bed had arrived, but the work had just begun. And when we get everyone together... The work hasn't stopped. It is just starting. We're just getting started on the work that we're called to do. In this passage of Scripture, they are called to assemble together. And that's not just a word that means to gather. It's a word that means to weave. It's a word that means to connect. That's what we're called to do. What we see in this passage of Scripture and in all of Scripture 
is that the New Testament church was not just a place that they attended. It was a place that they belonged. It was a gathering that they were part of. It was where they were held accountable and challenged to grow in their faith. Now, because there's this, this differing idea of what it means to belong to a church, it's really common for there to be churches where there's only a dozen people there on Sunday, but there's 400 people on the membership roll. And those 400 people, wherever they might be, think of themselves as belonging to that church because their name is written on a piece of paper, but they're not a part of it. It's also common today for there to be churches where there are thousands of people and there are no members and there are very few people that are engaged in ministry and very few who belong to groups where they're held accountable. We want to be a church where people are assembling, where they're gathering and being connected. Because this is so important to us, just this past uh, year, the beginning of this year, we have redefined our pastoral roles for this purpose. We've just rewritten our associate pastor's job descriptions, and we have recognized that Pastor Dustin, that kind of his calling, his role is to help people who were attending to come to belong, and Pastor Eric's role is as people are coming to belong, helping them plug into discipleship groups, into groups to become apprentices of Jesus. And we, we believe here at Faith Church that the ultimate example of this is membership. And I preached on this passage of Scripture 18 months ago on membership. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. I encourage you to go back and watch it on our YouTube feed or listen to the podcast. And there's also a couple of books that I recommend in that, that message that I think you should read. I'm a church member by Tom Rainer or church membership by Jonathan Lehman. But that's not our emphasis this morning. Membership's not our, our emphasis. Today, we want to talk about this important function we can perform as a church if we belong if we are connected. When we are a congregation and not merely an aggregation, when we do not merely attend, but we also belong, we're able to live out the call in this passage of Scripture. Because if there isn't any real connection between us, we're not able to follow this command. But if there is, if there is this connection, if there is this relationship, if I have the place in your life and you have the place in mine to give me feedback, we can encourage one another in this. But even if we've got that right, we can't do this alone. We can be grapes, but only he can be the vine. We can be people who are plugged in and connected but that means nothing if Jesus is not here in the midst with us. And that's what the author is talking about in the beginning of this chapter. He points out in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10 that there's this difference between the old temple and the new church that we belong to. Now, he's writing to a group of people that would have gone to these religious ceremonies in the temple, and they would have watched these priests conduct these ceremonies again and again and again, where they would take a lamb and they would sacrifice that lamb for the remission of sins. It was this practice that begins all the way in the Garden of Eden, carries throughout the entire Old Testament, and it's always pointing to what Jesus would do for us one day. And so they had seen these practices happening all of the time in the temple. And he points out that those religious ceremonies that would happen again and again were simply shadows of what was coming. Look at verse 3 of chapter 10. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. He's saying the, the temple, the priests, they would offer these sacrifices, but they needed to do it again and again and again because they're not able to handle the problem of sin. Look, at, look down at verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, and he's referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Why did we gather this morning and sing about Jesus and sing about how he is worthy? Because he did this for us. He was the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. He was able to accomplish what millions of sacrifices and millions of ceremonies and millions of good deeds could never accomplish. He was able to cover our sins with his once and for all sacrifice for us. Jesus is built different because he came and lived among us as a man, but he's God in the flesh. And so he is able to make a payment on our eternal debt with his eternal life. He's able to accomplish what we could never accomplish on our own. And because he has done that for us, our sins are forgiven. We sing about, is he worthy? Yes, he's worthy because he is the son of God who lived the perfect life, lived the life we could never live. And he died the death that we deserve so that we can be forgiven. And so for this reason we have been made perfect and we're being sanctified what we believe this passage is teaching us is that when you place your faith in jesus christ and the sacrifice he made for you on the cross you are instantly justified and then progressively sanctified in that moment you're standing before god is it as if you have never sinned all of the things of your past all of the mistakes that you have made all of the brokenness is redeemed. And then God begins this work, this gradual daily work of making you more and more and more like Jesus. Instantly justified, progressively sanctified, becoming more and more like Jesus. And so Jesus not only handles this past for us, he makes us a promise for what he's going to do in the future. Look at verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Verse 17, and then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Amen. How wonderful is that? I don't know about you, but as I get older, I find it harder and harder to remember things. Stuff slips from my mind often. But do you know that there are some things I wish I could forget that I have not? Memories that when they come to my mind, they, they make me cringe. I, there's a visceral, physical reaction to them. God is almighty and powerful, and perhaps the greatest miracle that he has wrought is his ability to forget what you have done. That your lawless deeds, 
are remembered no more. What an incredible thought that the regrets from my past that I have, if I were to bring them to God, he would say, I have no memory of that. I don't remember that. Because my lawless deeds are remembered no more. He has handled that. It is forgiven. It is under the blood of his son. But it doesn't stop there. Because he also begins to write the law on our hearts and minds. Not only has he forgotten our lawless deeds, he begins to write in us the truth, the law that we should follow. We become the people we are meant to be, not because we finally pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, not because we finally get our act together, not because we get plugged into a great church that inspires us to be everything that we should be, but rather because God works in our hearts and lives and accomplishes what only he can accomplish. Listen, this message is about how the church is designed to help you love and to be a person who does good deeds. But no matter how right we get it here at the church, we cannot do what only God can do. And only God can change your heart. Only God can be the vine that produces that fruit in you. He says, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Did you have a subject in school that no matter how hard you tried, you just like couldn't get it into your brain? You know, you just like, I cannot understand this. For some of you, this was math. For some of you, this was English. I don't know why some of us, our brains can do better with other subjects than others. There are times that, you know, someone will talk about art and it's just totally beyond me. Or I'll hear our music team talk about a key change and I'm like, I have no idea what any of that means. None of it gets into my brain. My brain isn't built for that. And what the Bible teaches us about our hearts and minds is that they are broken. That it's not within my capacity to do the right thing. That it is in my very nature to do the right, to do the wrong thing. But because God is writing the law into my heart, it's becoming more and more and more natural for me to do right. And the things that I, I could work my entire life to try to cram into my head, he's able to write them in my heart. And information that I... I, I, I could read and I could study and it wouldn't make sense. He's able to show it to me. And listen, our prayer every Sunday when we gather is that the Spirit is present because I know it doesn't matter how good a sermon I preach, if the Spirit is not revealing this truth to you, it is null and void. He writes this on our hearts. And instead of it being this law out there that has to be pushed on us, that we have to be convinced that we should follow, it's this law that's in here that I want to follow. And for that reason, it doesn't feel oppressive. It doesn't feel like chains. I'm able to follow it with joy knowing that it's good. So instead of convincing people to do what they don't want to do, God rearrange our, rearranges our hearts so that we want to do what we ought to do. Now, I wish that all of this just happened instantly, but it doesn't. The justification happens instantly, but the sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, it's a work in progress. For that reason, even Paul, 
who wrote so much of the New Testament, he would write of himself. He says, I struggle because I still find myself doing things I know I should not do and I don't want to do. There's still this at work in him. So since God is at work and he's bringing us along and he's helping us to become more like him and it's still this work in progress, we need every advantage we can get to become more like him. And it's this idea that the author here is building on when he comes to verses 19 to 23. Look at those with me. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now, he's giving us this idea that we're able to come to God with our needs and requests, but he's using a little bit of wordplay. He's still building on that idea of the old temple and this new way. Because in the old temple, there was this place in the temple called the Holiest of Holies that nobody could go into except for the priest on very specific days when he'd gone through all of these specific rituals and ceremonies. Only then and only on certain days could he go into this place. And if he hadn't done everything exactly right, he could be struck dead. But when Jesus is on the cross and dying, the veil, the curtain that separated that room from all the rest is torn in two. And this place in God's presence, the holiest of holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, suddenly everyone is welcome because of what Jesus has done. And what he's saying here is we get to go into the holiest of holies. We get to come into the throne room of God before God himself with our requests and say, God, help me in this. Help me to be different. And then he continues, verse 21, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. You know what that means? God's not going to drop the ball. He's not going to let us down. He's made the way for us. He's made a covenant with us. And if this isn't working, if we're not seeing progress, it's not on God. And that brings us to 24 and 25. He's faithful, but I'm not. So I need a gathering of people. I need a group of people in my life to help me. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. God is good, I'm not. And I need all the help I can to steward what he's blessed me with, what he's given me. Uh, You might have seen in the Super Bowl uh, a few weeks ago, there were several sons of football greats that were playing in the Super Bowl. And two examples of this are Christian McCaffrey, who is the son of Ed McCaffrey, um, who his dad was a Super Bowl great, and Christian McCaffrey playing for the 49ers. And he was also playing for Kyle Shanahan, who is the son of Mike Shanahan, who coached Christian McCaffrey's dad, Ed McCaffrey. And, I mean, I think if you're the son of an NFL player, 
it's safe to say you probably got some pretty good genes, right? Like, you probably got handed down some genetic advantages, unlike my kids, right? But just having the genes, I mean, that's great. But think about how those kids who their dad is on an NFL team, they live at a football stadium. They're surrounded by other NFL greats. Not only do they have the genetic advantage, they're around football all the time. They're around other players. They're around other coaches. They're, they're eating, drinking, sleeping, football nonstop. And this genetic gift, this genetic advantage that they have been given, because they're surrounded by people who are focused on this, they're able to make the greatest use of this gift. Friend, God has given you a gift and that he has made it possible for you to be forgiven of your past and redeemed into your future. And the church should be the greatest environment for the stewarding of that gift in your life to make the full use of what it is that God has given you, that your past is forgiven and the law is being written in your heart and mind. So what should the church be doing? Well, here this passage says that we should stir up one another to love and good works. You ever been stirred up? I know you have. I've seen some of you get stirred up, right? Stirred up is when not everything is calm. Stirred up is when someone shakes things up a little bit. Stirred up is when we're not comfortable. The original word here is spurred. You know what a spur is, right? And a spur is this pointy object on a cowboy's boot that he can put into the side of the horse to get him moving. Getting stirred up is not always comfortable. Being spurred is not always pain-free. Scripture says that when we have other believers in our lives, other people who help us, that it's like iron sharpening iron. And if you've ever seen iron sharpen iron, you know that it is a labor-intensive and sparking. It's not always easy to be spurred. It's not always easy to have difficult and tough conversations. Sometimes we need to have conversations that aren't comfortable because it helps us become who it is that God wants us to be. But thankfully, the verse doesn't stop there because it says to spur on to love and good works and exhort one another. And exhort means to encourage. And the passage says, and, and do so more and more as you see the day approaching. And the day is the day of judgment. When we see darkness around us, when we see difficulty and hardship around us, as we see the world coming to its end, as we see these reminders that this is not our home, that there is another home coming, we need to be encouraging more and more and more. And listen, it's easy to fall into one or the other of these ditches. We could become a church that only does spurring. And only does confrontation. Or we could be a church that only does encouragement. No matter what you're doing. A healthy church does both. Stirring up. 
and encouraging. For what purpose? Toward love and good works. There is no end to the needs all around us. Friends, over the last year, there have been a couple times that our church has, we've done an ad online where it's just like, if you have a need, let us pray for you. And the needs that come flooding in from a 10-minute radius right here, it's overwhelming. There's a need all around us. Why must we be a church where we are bound and woven together? Why must we be a church that is stirred up and encouraging one another to love and good works? Because it is dark and it is evil days. And there are needs all around us. In World War II, when there was a great evil that had to be overcome, there are all these stories of how ships and planes were repurposed. And there are a couple of examples of cruise ships that were repurposed as battleships. If you've ever been on a cruise, you know it wasn't built for war. It was built for sunning, swimming, lots of buffets. And they had these cruise ships that would take people from place to place. And it was made to be this luxurious experience. But when the war came, they converted those cruise ships into troop carriers and battleships. Friend, let me tell you, the church was not built to be a cruise ship. We were built to wage war against the gates of hell and the needs that are all around us. Why must we spur one another to love and good works? Why must we spur one another towards sanctification? Why must we encourage one another to show love to our neighbors? Because there is a need all around us. And we're called into service of that need. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.